<laughs> All right. So our story continues with Rebecca at her mother's house. As you remember, once she went there, she told everyone what had happened at the well. Um, as it is, her brother Laban was listening in on everything that had been said. So what do we learn? He runs to the man to meet him at the spring. But we notice there is a slight caveat. Verse 30 gives us a hint of who Laban is. It is only once he sees the gifts given to Rebekah that he rushes out to the servant. This is consistent with what we know of Laban um, as someone who is a shrewd individual. Indeed, we'll see more of this when we get to Jacob's story. Um, Laban is actually very much involved there too. As it is seeing and hearing all that he has, Laban goes to Abraham's servant and speaks with him. Laban first acknowledges that the servant is blessed of the Lord, which is a recognition of the blessings God has bestowed, especially on Abraham. We notice how Laban offers the hospitality, which is the common practice of the time, and even unto this day in the Middle East. He provides a place for the servants um, and the camels food and water. Now, once all is set, the meal is about to commence. It is interesting to consider the rapidity of everything that is going on. It's similar to Abraham with the angels and the Lord, um, Lot with the angels and how he prepared the meal before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Rebecca earlier with the camels and how she kept rushing back and forth to water them. Yet even as this is the case and such hospitality is shown, the servant has but one focus. And that is fulfilling his master's wishes. Indeed, he will not even partake of the meal until he has spoken with the family concerning the matters of his arrival. As it is, such matters would normally be discussed after the meal. Thus, we are seeing here the servant's continued faithfulness to Abraham and also to God as he seeks to do all he can to fulfill the oath he swore before God to Abraham. All right, now we're going to read a bunch of verses because, it's again, this is a bunch of review. So, so as he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he had given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Is all this ringing a bell? I hope so. We're going to keep going. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please, let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. 
Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. All right. So verses 34 through 49 summarize everything that had happened in the previous half of the chapter. We relearn everything from Abraham, his servant, the quest, the oath, the events which transpired at the well. As such, there are a few things to notice, though, from these verses that we didn't quite catch the first time. First, the fact that the servant recognizes God's blessing on Abraham. Indeed, the blessing has caused Abraham to become great. As such, it is God who has done it, more so than Abraham. God has given him the flocks, the herds, the silver, the gold, the donkeys, the servants, and the camels. Indeed, all of these things have come through God's blessing of Abraham. The final point, however, is that Abraham has received a son even though Sarah was old. As such, God has been there for Abraham, and for the greedy Laban, and those in the house who are listening, these proclamations would cause them to want a union between the two families. We also see how the Lord is involved with the servant. The servant's requests are answered concerning his seeking a bride for Isaac. God's hand is seen not only in the life of Abraham and the blessings given to him, but also the Lord is for his son Isaac as well as the servant finds a wife who is suitable for Isaac in such an extravagant way. Likewise, the continued statement concerning the close kinship between the two families further gives Rebecca's family peace of mind. This is not some individual out of the blue who is seeking her hand in marriage. This is an individual who is a close in the familial relations, who has been blessed and who would provide and continue the family line. Thus, even if she were to leave her family, she would still be with family in the end. In all of this retelling, the servant recognizes God's loving kindness on Abraham and his family. As such, the servant asks whether they will also show such loving kindness to Abraham and his family by allowing Isaac to marry Rebekah. It all comes full circle when it comes to the servant. The servant is essentially putting them against God. God has brought all of this about. Will they try to deny it, or will they accept it and move forward? Now is the time to find out. So now verses 50 and 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you good or bad, bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. At this point, we find Bethuel enters the scene. We're unsure whether he has been there throughout the narrative thus far or where he's actually been. Was Laban at home while Bethuel, his father, was in the field? Was Bethuel returning from a trip? Is he not quite as significant as Laban is currently in the family, in the household? We cannot be sure why it has taken so long for Bethuel, uh, that is Rebekah's father, to come into the scene. He hasn't even been here at all. So here he is now, though. Regardless, both Laban and Bethuel acknowledge the story and recognize that God's hand really is at play in the whole thing. Thus, they willingly accept the idea of Rebekah marrying Isaac. We notice how the words used are the same used by Abraham. Take uh, and go, wife and son. They actually repeat very much everything that Abraham asked his servant to do in the beginning. 
So now verses 52 through 54. When Abraham's servant heard the words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry and silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. We see the faithfulness of Abraham's servant. He continually thanks God for the events that are taking place. He recognizes God's hands continue to move and continue to guide the situation further into blessing Abraham and his family. At this point, the servant provides numerous gifts given to both Rebecca and her family. Uh, And this is likely representation of a dowry, which was the normal practice at the time. All in all, there were many gifts given, and only after this was he and all the other servants who were with him able to relax and truly celebrate what has occurred. Then, as quickly as everything has transpired, he requested that they send him away back to Abraham immediately. Uh, Once everything had been finalized, he is ready to go home and is filled with urgency over fulfilling his oath to his master. Now we come to verses 55 through 61. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they went away, they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went on his way. Again, we see a lack of Bethuel again when the discussion happens the second time. Indeed, we see Laban and Rebekah's mother involved in the discussion. Ultimately, they're reluctant to send Rebekah so quickly. Is this because they wanted her to stay for a while? They didn't want to miss her? Were they trying to swindle the servant? Uh, Who can be sure? All we know is that they were not very willing to allow Rebekah to leave quite yet. The servant, however, is reluctant to wait. Indeed, the ten days is, an even, is even too long, and he even wonders if that will just delay even more time. Instead, he wishes to return to his master. One has to wonder whether Abraham's old age is a play in this scenario, and if the servant wishes to return home before Abraham passes. This, however, is only speculation at this point. We'll see that maybe a little bit later. Ultimately, they decide to ask Rebecca what she would like to do. It is in her hands. Does she stay or does she leave immediately? So we are left on the edge of our seats, so to speak. Um, Left at the edge of a needle. Will she decide to stay close to her family or will she decide to leave with the servant and marry Isaac right now? The answer is simple. I will go. Some scholars note the similarity between Abraham and Rebekah in this moment. Abraham was told to go from your father's house. So it is, Rebekah says, I will go. And it says, logically, that implies that she is leaving from her father's house as well. They then say goodbye to their sister. Scholars note that this does not necessarily mean that only her brothers and sisters said goodbye. Instead, it likely means a more generic uh, female relative which would mean everyone in the family would quickly say goodbye to Rebecca and Deborah, who was her nurse since childhood. Rebecca is then blessed by her family. 
that she would have numerous offspring and that enemies would not vanquish them. Indeed, much of the blessing is similar to that found in Genesis 17 and elsewhere when God blesses Abraham. The scene ends rather abruptly. Rebecca, her young woman, and the men who had accompanied the servant all went back. Indeed, the focus is on the servant who had first been called. He went on his way with them back to Canaan. All right, so now we're going to end the chapter with these few verses. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Rory and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So the scene now jumps a few weeks or months into the future. Um, we, are not focused on, uh, we are now focused on Isaac, who had been dwelling in the Negeb, and that's again south in Canaan. It is interesting, since the story first started with Abraham, who was in Hebron. Uh, as it is, Isaac and Abraham had either moved for a time, or Isaac and Abraham had separated, or another alternative is that I, Abraham had passed away while his servant was away. We find Isaac in the field meditating. This is likely that he was either considering God in his ways or spending some time in quiet and prayer. We can't know for sure since the word meditate in the text is a rare word used. Regardless, he lifts up his eyes and sees the camels coming. Rebecca at this point lifts up her eyes. She notices Isaac. Um, we see her energetic personality as she quickly just, just jumps down from her camel. She continues to show the sporadic energy that she's had since the beginning, even after traveling such a distance. She then talks to the servant and asks about the man. It is interesting that the servant responds with, it is my master. Um, so far throughout the story, Abraham was the servant's master and Isaac was the master's son. For the change to be made leads us to suspect that Abraham has, in fact, passed away while the servant was away. This, of course, is only speculation, but under the circumstances, it seems uh, a reasonable course. Her response is to veil and cover herself. It was customary during the time for the bride to be veiled during the wedding ceremony. Um, that she veiled herself immediately may imply the ceremony didn't take that long to come about, or that she was going to keep herself veiled until the wedding took place. When Isaac finally greets the servant and the servant informs him of everything that had occurred, uh, from this, Isaac takes Rebekah into his mother's tent. In this way, it shows that Rebekah is now the leading matriarch in the family. She has replaced Sarah, who had died previously. Indeed, Isaac takes Rebekah as his wife and loves her. The final statement um, has Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It puts it all under perspective for him. Ultimately, Rebecca is the new matriarch. She has become the newest member of those to find the blessing and be blessed. Indeed, she will be blessed with thousands upon thousands and a legacy as one of the matriarchs of the people of Israel, one who we still talk about today. All right. So the main point of these verses, 
Reflect and summarize all that takes place after the servant of Abraham meets Rebekah. He retells everything that occurred, and Rebekah's family can't help but concede all the points showing God's hand in the narrative. Despite a moment of contention whether Rebekah would return with the servant in the end, she does, and comes to the land of Canaan to be the bride of Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, while Rebekah becomes the new matriarch of the family. All right, some application points to this. Within the story of Rebecca and her eventual meeting and marriage of Isaac, there are another two players who are involved but often overlooked because of the marriage storyline. Yes, throughout the story we find the possibility of love, the possibility of marriage, and happily ever afters. We consider how Rebecca joined the immediate family and how she was greatly loved by Isaac. So much so that her presence eased the pain of losing his mother, whom he loved. Yes, we can consider all of these elements of romance, at least from an arranged marriage perspective, but then we would be missing two key players in the whole story. The first is the servant who is faithful to God and Abraham, and the second is God himself. Without these two, this story wouldn't have nearly as much of an impact and would be little more than a common love story. But these two... It transcends the common love story which makes our hearts all aflutter, so to speak. Now, this doesn't mean that there is something wrong with romance. Indeed, romance is a wonderful thing. When such love is before us, we should all rejoice. Such a love is beautiful, and as such, the elements of this longest story in Genesis is something to allow our hearts to be happy with. Indeed, romance is a great thing, something we should encourage with our married couples. You know, be romantic. All of you, be romantic. It's good. Husbands, be romantic. Your wives want you to be romantic. Do it. You're doubting, but it's true. They're thinking it. But again, there is more to the story than the romance aspect. And so we want to encourage that, but we also want to see that there is also the faithful servant and the loving God. In both of these, we find just as much depth when we consider these two. Indeed, consider how we can relate to the servant and God. First with the servant. This man was a faithful servant who fulfilled his oath to the fullest. He made a vow, a promise, to do exactly as his master had requested in finding a suitable wife for Isaac. He did it to the utmost of his ability with his whole heart. Thus, in the servant, we find an individual we can emulate in our own lives when it comes to following after Christ. Just as the servant gave all of himself to his master's will, so we should also give all of who we are to our master's will. When we live our lives for the glory of God, giving ourselves 100% over to him, this is the kind of life we should be seeking, the kind of life we should be seeking, which is one which honors and glorifies our God. And yes, that includes husbands being passionate with your wives. I have to keep saying it. Now, does this mean that you or I personally do not matter? Of course not. The servant in the story who is still who he was. He was faithful in who he was and what he was called to do and be. You and I are no different. It doesn't matter if you are Danny or Heather or Bruce and Brenda, who's in there, or insert your name, whoever you are. You who are unique unto you 
You who are in and of yourself an image bearer of God. Yes, you, you and all of your personhood can glorify God in your life and where you are right here, right now, by being a servant to him. Indeed, consider what Christ says in John 12, 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You and I are like the servant in this regard. And as such, we can learn from the servant to give ourselves over to one greater than ourselves. Like the servant, we can also learn how to be thankful for others and thankful when God blesses our own endeavors. We notice how the servant was immediately thankful to God when prayers were answered and when responses from Rebekah's family were in the affirmation of the union between Rebekah and Isaac. Isn't it interesting, when these individuals acted, the servant thanks God. How often do we thank God when good things happen, when others make good choices, or when God blesses us through others? Indeed, the servant represents what we should be when we seek God moving around us and we see him moving around us. As it is, we live in a world of two distinct choices before us. We can either be servants of God or servants of sin. This is what we see when Paul says in Romans six fifteen through 23 What then? Are we to sin because you are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in this we find an interesting paradox, but a good one. In one sense, in our freedom and sin, we were free with our wills and our choices. Unfortunately, that only led to dark things, to unrighteousness, to sin, to death. Yet in Christ we are freed from the bondage of darkness and are now free to serve in obedience to God. 
As such, we have been given freedom from sin and death, but that does not mean we live however we want. Instead, our freedom leads us to our own crosses. Our freedom leads to a life of living for God and his glory above all else, above sin, above at times even self. For we know that which honors and glorifies God most is what is best for ourselves and is best for the world. As such, the servant in today's story is one who was all the things we are meant to seek. All that we are meant to attain. We are to be servants and to be obedient servants, faithful servants. Thus, we are responsible with our freedom to recognize our God is worthy of those who follow after him. Be encouraged then to serve well. Be encouraged to seek to be obedient to God, bearing good fruit, keeping with repentance, remaining faithful in all things, seeking righteousness. These are how we are to live, to serve, to follow after God. As such, with all of your might and all of who you are, seek to live this life here and now in service to him, knowing the one in whom we serve is worthy of us. Indeed, this leads directly to the second person that we mentioned, and that is God. In this story, it is reminiscent of the way God moves that we found in Ruth. Um, If we remember, that was a long time ago that we went over Ruth. But in Ruth, God is always behind the scenes. He never takes center stage, so to speak. But instead, he moves and acts unseen as if guiding the course and the story along its designated course. The same is what we find here in this text. God moving behind the scenes to bring it all about for Isaac and Rebekah to be together, for Abraham's request to be answered. Oftentimes we think that in order for God to move, it must be in grand ways. But consider how much grander it is for God to not only move in the miraculous, but also in the mundane. Consider how wonderful our God truly is to move not only in the seen places, but the unseen places as well. For that is the truth of it. God, he directs the world. He gives us our freedoms, and yet even in our freedom of will, he moves the course of history in the direction it needs to go. In this way, we are partakers of the course of history. He does not need to overpower our wills, for he knows every circumstances, and he knows what is needed in order for his glory to be fully revealed in the course of history. Despite our best actions, the truth is God's will will not be thwarted. Now, does that mean we can do whatever we want and be whoever we want? We already talked about that. By no means. Instead, God in his grace saves us. And in salvation, which is only his to give, his spirit comes upon us and we can walk in step with him. And we can desire to be like the servant in the story, serving our utmost to his highest. He redeems us through Christ so that we can be partakers of what is good and holy and right and loving for his glory. Thus we come again in full circle. God is the great orchestrator, and we are the players in the band. He sets the notes on the page, and we are called to follow the songs faithfully, playing our part in the tune with the best of our abilities that we may. Yet he is the one who sets us on the path, 
and he is the one who does actually all the work. All that is required of us is to be who we are in our gifts and follow after. The more we follow, the more we will see it is Christ in us the whole time. So it is, our God is great, far greater than we are. He is able to move and weave the threads of time and space to give us wisdom and guide our steps and the steps of others so that in the end he will be greatly glorified in all of these things. As such, let us rejoice over our God. Let us rejoice over who he is. Let us rejoice over the blessings we receive from him and let us rejoice in knowing that nothing and no one can thwart God's will. Indeed, Let us also rejoice knowing that our God does move in time and space. This is an important thing for us not to forget. There are many who believe God is absent from his creation. It's called deism. Who is all up there, but never in here, or never around us. As it is, we know that our God is here. He has given us his spirit to dwell among us, within us. He has given us his son in time, space, history, and flesh to redeem us. Indeed, our God is a mover. He does. He acts. As such, what can cause us any fear? Our fear is gone because we know our God is greater than the mountains we climb and the valleys we fall into. We are never alone because our God is always with us. So let's not fear when we see God moving. Instead, let us again rejoice. Our God is great and mighty. He is sovereign. He is above and beyond. And yet he is here with us. How wonderful is our God. How magnificent are his ways. He who breathed stars into existence and could destroy the cosmos gently carries us along, moving in our circumstances and our lives. Indeed, this is a great thought, one which I hope we never lose. In this story, God moves in the background. Your life and mine, they are no different. For God moves in and around us as well. Let us find peace knowing that this is the case. Now all of this leads us back to the gospel. Um, And I'm, I'm thinking you probably already have seen a little bit of it, but we'll get into it now anyway. Um, And when it comes to the origins, we have to remind ourselves, okay, creation, the fact that God created the universe, we're not here by happenstance. It's not like one day the universe is like, hey, um, you know, I'm just going to start. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't make any sense. As it is, God, who is the creator, who is the most powerful and all-powerful one, he created the cosmos. And as it is, he created all that we see around us. But most of all, he created you and I to be his image. And as such, we each have dignity and worth and sanctity to life. And it's a wonderful thing that we have these attributes which reflect God, that you have creativity and reason and love because our God is all of these things. And we bear that image. But as it is, we also know the reality of the state of humanity because something is wrong. Something is wrong when death happens. Something is wrong when women are abused. Something is wrong when children are abused. Something is wrong when we have depression and our cognitive abilities start to diminish. 
when diseases happen, when mass shootings happen, when people blow themselves up, we know something is wrong. When we lie to each other, when we cheat, when we steal, all of these things show us that there's something dreadfully wrong with humanity. And the question is, what can we do to fix it? Because if God is a just God, and if he is a righteous God, and if the Bible is true and when it talks about him being holy and wonderful, then guess what? That means that we deserve judgment because we have broken his laws. So the question is, how are we made right with God? How are we made right with each other, with ourselves? Unfortunately, we continue to see that we can't do it on our own. This morning we were going through Total Truth, and we were talking about education. And, um, you know, in our educational system, for example, we keep trying these different methods in education. And we try these methods to train children, to get them to act properly, behavior modification. Um, we try to just let them be relative, and, you know, their truth is the truth. So one plus one, if it equals three to them, that's okay. You know, we think that's crazy, because it is. But that's what they're being taught. But what is it that we're really seeing? What we're really seeing there is that we're trying to fix something without God. We're trying to fix a problem without God. And it doesn't work. And it's not just education, it's everything. If you look at it, the majority of our society, you continue to see this way of trying to plug in and trying to fix and trying to get it right, and it never works. So the question is, how can we fix it? And the answer that we keep on seeing is that you and I can't fix it on our own. We need something more, and that's redemption. That through Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, we are redeemed. Fully redeemed. Our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength is redeemed. And that through him, we are made right with God. We're made right with each other. We're made right with ourselves, with the world around us. It's through his redemption. And all that he asks of us is to follow him. It's faith that saves us by his grace. It's not that you work so hard to attain it. He says, here, take it, follow me. How wonderful is that? And so it is that that's kind of what we see a little bit of today in the fact that we are servants of God Most High. We can become servants because we are redeemed. Redemption is the key. Redemption is what the world is lacking and what Christ offers us. And so it leads somewhere. You know, all the things that we see repeatedly in our world it doesn't lead to anything but death. Because even if you spend your life being politically active, or if you spend your life doing this or that, and that's what you dedicate yourself to, dedicate yourself to wealth, dedicate yourself to changing things or being an environmentalist or whatever. I'm not against environmentalism. I'm against it being a god. Anyway, the point is, though, is that it leads to death. Only one thing leads to life, and that is Jesus. Serve Jesus. Follow after him. He is worthy of you. And his redemption is a complete redemption. And it's wonderful.
Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Father, as we consider Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, as we consider Sarah, Rebecca, and as we consider all of the history from then until now, and as we consider the fact that through Abraham you made a declaration, a promise, that through, your, that through them, through this one family in the middle of nowhere, you would bring about a blessing unto the entire world. Father, as we move through the story of these individuals, let us remember that it is all about you. Let us remember that you are a God who works not only in the majestic ways, but also in the mundane. That you are there with us every step of the way. And there are times when it feels like you're not, and at times it feels like you're against us. But the truth is, is that even in our hard times, even in the valleys, and even in the mountains, Lord, we know, we can be sure that you're still with us. And you remind us of that. You remind us that we have to go through these hard times. Your very son went through the darkest of times when he was unjustly crucified for our sins. And so thus, even if we should go through these times, Lord, and even if we should be unsure, we can know that you're with us because you were with him as well. And that through him, you are always going to be with us. And so the story of Rebecca and Isaac and the servant Yes, it's their story, but it reminds us that it's not that far from ours and that you move in our lives as well and you walk with us and you love us. So, Lord, we ask that your love would flow out from your throne and that each of us would also share it with those around us. May you alone be praised for what you have done. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.
Thank you all for coming out today, this last Sunday in 2018. I hope and pray that your next new year will be wonderful, that we will rejoice and have resolutions galore, um, and that we'll just remain faithful. May God be with you. Shine the light. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.